Okay, we're going to be in 2 Samuel 12, part 4 now of this Destroyed by Desire. And after this, we're going to be done with Bathsheba and David, at least in this continuing saga. This is the end of it. So I was talking last night when I set up about this a little bit, and it was funny because uh, the irony of the illustration that came up. If you were here last week, uh, the illustration that I used to kind of launch us into the study was Nixon and his famous, I'm not a crook, you know. And here's the irony of the best way to lead into this one is another president, Bill Clinton, who, who concealed something for years despite being the most watched man in the world. The, uh, Nixon's, I'm not a crook. Well, Clinton's was, I did not have sex with that woman, you know. And we all know that's not true. And the, I, the joke of it all became, well, how do you really define sex? Let me give you a little excerpt from a biographer that wrote on this. In 1997, suing for sexual harassment, Paula Jones' lawyers decided to show to the court a pattern of behavior by Clinton that involved his repeatedly becoming sexually involved with state or government employees. Jones' lawyers therefore subpoenaed women they suspected Clinton had had affairs with, one of whom was Monica Lewinsky. And her or excuse me, in his deposition for the Jones lawsuit, Clinton denied having, quote, sexual relations with Monica Lewinsky. Based on evidence provided by Linda Tripp, um, which identified the existence of a blue dress with Clinton's semen on it, Kenneth Starr concluded that this sworn testimony was false and perjurious. Now, here comes the part. During the deposition of the Jones case, Clinton was asked, quote, Have you ever had sexual relations with Monica Lewinsky, as that term is defined in Deposition Exhibit 1 as modified by the court? End quote. The judge ordered that Clinton be given an opportunity to review the definition. The definition stated that, quote, A person engages in sexual relations when the person knowingly engages or causes contact with the genitalia, growing breast, inner thigh, or buttocks of any person with an intent to arouse or gratify the sexual desire of any person, end quote. Clinton flatly denied having sexual relations with Ms. Lewinsky. Later, Later, Clinton stated that he believed the definition of sexual relations agreed upon for the Jones deposition excluded oral sex. Sure. Okay, buddy. You know, and I'm not beating, I'm not necessarily beating him up either because, as I said last week with, with Nixon, Nixon did some great things. Clinton did some good things. But just like in the other case, what we're going to remember Clinton for in a lot of ways is promiscuity or something. You watch Saturday Night Live, you don't ever see him. Every time you see him, he's in Bermuda shorts talking about sex with somebody or something. So... But, you know, he conceals this thing for a long time. The Jones stuff actually started in 1991. It was 97 before he was at trial and as president. So David does the same thing. David conceals this whole mess for over a year, for over a year. And if you remember, Joab already kind of called him out on his sin. And he sent reply back to Joab and said, hey, don't call it evil. Don't call it evil what I'm doing, Joab. It's okay. People die more. It's all good. But it's interesting, the power of a parable, because Nathan comes to him with a parable 
and it blows them away. Watch this. Um, and if you've been here before, I taught on parables about three years ago, and some of you were here, and we just we talked about this. Because to me, of all the parables that Jesus told, of all of the parables in the Bible, and yes, there are plenty in the Old Testament too, this is the most powerful, most effective parable ever told. Because the moment it comes out of his mouth, the person's got it immediately. Not only got it, but destroyed by it. Watch this. Second Samuel 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, Nathan is the prophet. We've already talked about him in the past. I'm not going back into all that. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And it says and he bought it. And that's because a lot of times in Hebrew, the word it's not used. Everything is either masculine or feminine in Hebrew. So a lot of times the English will choose to use the word it, like in the case of an animal or something. But in this case, every single time it's used, it's her. So I would suggest you, and I'm going to read it that way, we use the word her because it's not ever confused male or female, it's her. And it actually makes the story more sweet and more ugly. So watch. And he brought her up. And she grew up with him and with his children. She used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And she was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared her for the man who had come to him. Now I'm going to tell you something even before we go on. I read that several times, especially when you see the she and the her in there. And you can really get a picture of how ugly sin is to God. I know this story backwards, forwards, sideways. Every time I read it, it makes me mad again. You know, it's, it's ugly. And I mean, it is, sin is just vicious, ugly to God. That's a, that's a horrible picture to imagine. You have all of these animals, all these lambs, and there's this man who is just loves his, you know, if we were going to make it a modern day term, take your dog or your cat, you know, and even that doesn't bring justice to the story. But I mean, this is a little lamb of, uh, that he loves her. He's taking care of her. She, this little lamb's run and played with his kids, jumped all over the place. Uh, you know, sat, it comes in the table, they feed it from the table, it climbs in his lap and sleeps at night, and this rich guy who has, you know, dozens of them comes and grabs this lamb and cuts it up, cuts its throat, pours out its blood, cooks it, prepares it, and is sitting on a dinner table in front of a random stranger. I mean, that's, that's how ugly sin is in God's eyes. Look at verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. Yeah, I guess so. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who does, has done this deserves to die. Before I go any further there, in Hebrew, it doesn't say deserves to die. It says the son of death. The man who has done this, the son of death. Now, that's interesting because David almost just called down his own curse. Because you'll see next week that what happens to David is... David's son, this child dies, and David's sons begin to attack each other, and his whole family goes into chaos over all this. So he's literally not just saying this man deserves to die. He's almost pronouncing his own sentence on himself. He's saying son of death. But look at this, man. We already looked at it in 2 Samuel eleven twenty. Joab said, if the king's anger arises, he says, then tell him this, 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 and this. 
And, of course, the king's anger doesn't arise. Instead, the king says, thank God that guy's dead. Hey, don't worry about it, Joab. Don't hold it as evil against me. Things happen. People die. Hey, it's war. Bad things happen. But it's crazy because when Nathan comes to him, look at second, uh, chapter 12, verse 5, then David's anger was greatly kindled. You point the thing out right in his face, and he's making excuses. But you come to him with a parable, and immediately you get the response you're after. Why, why is that? What do you think happened? What is it about the parable? What is it about the parable that's so effective? Not just this one, but in general, but especially this one. Huh? What? You talk quieter. Talk louder, not quieter. <laughs> huh? Some people visualize. That's right. That's exactly right. This is what it does. It makes David see himself as the victim. He visualizes himself as the victim in this thing. See, when you just point out, hey, you're a sinner. Oh, really? So are you. I mean, that's the response I would normally get. You go walk up to somebody and you say, you're a sinner. Yes, yeah, so are you. We're all sinners. You know, that's what you get. But if you can get somebody to visualize how ugly they really are, and I don't mean to put it that way, but it's the truth, how ugly or how dead we really are in our sin. If you can get somebody to see that, by visualizing it personally, it will change everything. And that's exactly what happens. He, he totally sees this. David, like, sees this, and he sees himself as the victim, and he's furious. All right? So verse 6. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, or give him back four of them, because he did this thing. Watch this. David adds on. And because he had no pity. David is saying, because he was, what he's saying is, David's saying he was greedy. He had everything, and he didn't have pity on this poor guy. And God, you know, God's up there just going, yep, yep, that's right. And Nathan says to David, some of the most famous words in the entire Bible, you are the man. Now, I just picture the chill that went straight down his spine when he heard that. I mean, the chill that went down his spine. Watch this. Thus says the Lord, the God. Look at him. He doesn't say, so what do you think about that? He doesn't say, so how do you feel about that? He doesn't say, now repent and pray. Uh, there ain't, there, it doesn't matter how you respond, David. Here's the facts. Because you are the man, the Lord, the God of Israel, not you, David. Let's, forget, let's not forget something here, David. You are not the God of Israel. You may be the king of Israel, but you are not the God of Israel. You have no right to take a woman that does not belong to you just because you're king. You are not God. So let's establish something. The Lord, the God of Israel... I want y'all to underline this if you write in your Bible. I anointed you, king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's hand, house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, <laughs> I would add to you as much more. We've talked about this a n- number of times. If you're in this class, which is fastly becoming the sovereignty class, you know for a fact that that is, there's no, what did David do? What is he saying? Because you did this, David, I did all this for you. Nothing. David did not. That's why God, I mean, that's what's so crazy about grace and, and us continuing to sin and me continuing to sin. It's like, 
I, God did all of this for me, for me. I'm talking about me now. God did all of this for me, and I still sin. I know God has to be sitting there going, what is the matter? I mean, I know he's not because he knows, but I'm just saying. Look at verse 9. This is really interesting. Look what it says. Why God's still talking to David through Nathan. Why have you despised the Lord? doesn't say the Lord, does it? It says what? The word of the Lord. That's pretty interesting. It doesn't say, why have you despised the Lord? It says, why have you despised the word of the Lord? Now, we can go crazy with this and say, hey, John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. We know that the word is Jesus because John 1, 14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But we also know that Jesus was in the beginning in creation. He is speaking of God in general when he says, why have you despised the word of the Lord? He is talking about himself as a whole. But there's more to it than that. He's saying that, David, you have no respect for my word. Now, we got a Bible in our hand. He didn't have a Bible in his hand, but he had prophets and he knew the word. You couldn't be a king and not know the word. At least, and what they had, which would have been the Torah at the very least, the first five books, the law. And he's saying, what he's telling them is, you have despised my word. Listen to me, guys. When you sin, I'm not trying to be hateful. I'm just telling you what it says. When you sin, it's telling God, I could give a flip about this book right here. You know, God said, if you're not for me, you're against me. And you're going to see that in just a second, too. He's saying, you have despised my word by your behavior. That's hard. Let's look at the rest of it. To do what is evil in his sight, you have, you, this is Nathan still talking to David, or God through Nathan, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. Whoa, wait a minute, did he? I mean, he didn't pick up a sword and stab anybody. You know, hey, some people say it's just a little white lie. It's just a little thing. I, I wasn't even involved. I knew all about it, but I wasn't involved. Hey, look, you are responsible. You struck him down and have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. That's a pretty interesting picture of a man using other men, even his own enemies, to accomplish his own sin. Picture that. You want to look at a little picture of sovereignty, a, a sub-sovereignty, if you want to look at it? Look at what David has done. David has used his men, the men of God, in order to execute a man of God by the hand of evil men. That's crazy. But David has orchestrated the whole thing. I mean, David's definitely played God here big time. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword... Now, here's the curse. Therefore, the sword shall never... Depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Look at that. You have despised me. God says you have despised me. Not I have despised you. You, David, have despised me. And the sword will never depart from your house. Maybe we'll talk about this more in a minute, but think about it. Is that true? The house of David is Israel. Is there a sword in Israel? Watch the news every single day. I mean, I went there a year and a half ago, and we had rockets launched at us. 
in one place. By the time we got to Jerusalem, there had been a bomb that had blown up at a bus station. I mean, it's every day. Every single day, all the time. It's never departed. Never departed. I don't have time to go into it, but we could walk through history and you can see this just constant massacre of the people of David. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, now underline this one, I, God, will raise up evil against you. I'm really proud of ESV for keeping it that way, too. They didn't try to translate calamity or hard times. It's the word evil. That messed with your theology a little bit. God said, I will raise up evil against you. It might. Why would God ever do anything evil? That didn't make any sense. It didn't say God did anything evil. It said God raised up evil against him. I know that sounds like a cop-out, but it's not. Side note, if God didn't use evil people, what has he got left? You know what I'm saying? Careful, you don't walk out of here thinking you're holy and somebody else is evil. We're all evil. We're redeemed if you've trusted in Christ. We're redeemed, but you still sin. So if God didn't use evil, who's he going to use? But just be careful that you don't ever rob God and think, okay, God's over here, Satan's over here, Satan is as strong as God, and there's this battle going on that God has a hope he's going to win. That's not the way it works. Not the way it works. God said, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I'll take your wives before your eyes and give them to... Probably most translations say neighbor, which I don't know why they translate it that way because it makes it confusing. What it literally says is to one close to you. One close to you. Well, it's his son. You're going to see it. We'll read it. But it's his son that this happens with. So neighbor seems to be confusing when you turn around and see it's his son. But if you look at the literal words, it says to one close to you. Well, that makes sense. It's real close. He's your son. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son or before the eyes of this son. Now, he doesn't just say in the eyes of the son. What he's saying is this is going to happen in public. And in fact, it does. We'll get to it. But he's saying this son, this specific son. What what does he mean by that? What do you think? I think he means it's going to happen soon. It's going to happen real soon. We're not talking about many moons from now or whatever. This is going to happen very soon. Matter of fact, very, very soon. It happens almost right away. Verse 12. For you did it secretly, but I'll do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Now we don't have this. We just have before the sun. What he's saying is you did this thing behind closed doors. You kept it a secret for a year, but the whole world's fixing to see it. God is rough about doing that. I'm telling you. Let's go back to the presidential you know, topic. Nixon, Clinton, you know, with much power becomes much responsibility. You know, think about they were exposed in front of the whole world, not even just America, the whole world. Think about uh, some of y'all may know uh, Jim Baker, the Jim Baker stuff, you know, the, the predecessor to the TBN things. They he got exposed before the whole world. And it crashes. Man, it crashes so bad when that happens. Look at verse 13. David said to Nathan, here you go. This is the power of this moment. I mean, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against Uriah? No. I've sinned against Bathsheba? No. 
I have sinned against the Lord. You might have hurt somebody. You might have destroyed something. You might have broke something. But you ultimately sin against God. And that's it. And Nathan said to David, dude, you have got to have this verse underlined. This is the most awesome verse ever, I think, in the Old Testament. The Lord also put away or took away your sin. You shall not die. What? What? David just committed the most heinous sin that any, I'm going to use the word believer, ever committed. Ever committed, he used his power and he took a woman that did not belong to him, created this massive scandal to get this woman, ki- I mean, get, the, get her husband killed because he made the woman pregnant. He, he marries her. He does. I mean, this is a huge scandal. I mean, look what's in it. Murder, adultery, covetous. I mean, you go down the lot. It's all there. He did. He did blew it all. And God comes to him and says, you know what? You're fixing to reap it. But. The Lord has put away your sin and you shall not die. Why not? Grace. Guys, it does it say, and I'm not trying to go too far here, but I'm just telling you. Does it say, but David, if you offer four calves and three lambs, God will forgive your sin. Does it say, but David, if you go and you get on your knees and you pray and you confess your sins before the Lord and you do, then it's faithful and just. I mean, those things are true, but does it say that he needs to do that in order to be forgiven here? Mm -mm. The Lord has... It doesn't just say forgiven you. What it means is God has taken them up and threw them. They're gone. That's what it means. He has put them away, thrown them away. They are gone. Now, I'm going to tell you, you want to know what David does? He kneels down. He falls on his face and he asks forgiveness. Not in order to make God throw them away, but because he realizes God did throw them away. And it breaks his heart. How could God do that? I deserve to die. How could God just throw my sin away? He can't grasp it, man. And so go to Psalm. Well, I'll tell you what. Before I do that, let me give you, let me give you two reasons. I'm, I'm going to take you there. But let me give you two reasons why God didn't kill him. Number one was grace. But and I'll look at it in a second. But even before that, there's another reason why he didn't kill him. What is it? He had plans for him. He made a covenant with the house of David. And God does not break covenants. Thank God. I don't know who else to thank for that, but God. Thank God that God does not break covenants, man. He doesn't break covenants. He keeps his word. He says, you, there will be, you can go back and look at it later, 2 Samuel 7, 13 through 17. We've already read it. He made a promise to the house of David, and that promise will stand. Now, it might now come with a lot of bloodshed, but it's still going to stand. And then there's grace. I want you guys to make a note of a couple of passages. We got a few minutes. Go there. Isaiah 48, real quick. Turn to, hold your finger because we'll come back. But turn to Isaiah 48, verse 9. This is probably the kind of things that we don't like to look at or think about or talk about. But guys, it's scripture. Isaiah 48, verse 9. Jesus, or God says, this is a direct quote from God. For, God, for my name's sake... I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. He's talking about Israel and their sin. Guys, 
for my name's sake, for me, for the sake of my praise, I will defer my anger. Put, put it off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. Buddy, that was, if I was still in a band, I think that would be my next album title, The Furnace of Affliction. Verse 11, for my own sake, 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 I do it. Guys, how can you fit anything in here? It's for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another, even a repentant person on the floor. You will not get my glory. For my name's sake, I will forgive you. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. There's a little plug for Jesus right there, because in Revelation, he calls himself those very words. Ezekiel 36, go over there real quick. We'll jump back to Second Samuel in just a minute. Go to Ezekiel 36. If you are a Christian in this room, then you are a Christian because you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and a new covenant. That's what the Old Testament is. Old covenant, New Testament's new covenant. New covenant was created in the old covenant. That's why it's called the new one, because in the old one. They said there will be a new one. So if you want to know where did this whole idea of Jesus and all that come from, you got to go to the old covenant to find out. Well, here's one of the places where it's described. Ezekiel 36, verse 21. This is your salvation that I'm fixing to read. But watch how it works. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned or sinned against among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, God's telling Ezekiel this, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, quote, it is not for your sake, Israel, that I'm about to act. Or we could say it is not for your sake, Brainerd Baptist or Christians across the world or church or whatever that I'm about to act. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned or sinned against, among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. And I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Guys, if you haven't wrestled with this before, let me tell you something. That's grace. Talk about getting what you don't deserve. That's the most simple, ridiculous answer to that question I've ever heard in my life. It's true, but that's about that's kindergarten level. It's getting what you don't deserve. That's like learning your ABCs. No kidding. This is the meat of it right here. This is you and I and David are sinful people, 
separated from a holy and pure God and a holy and pure and amazing God for reasons related to his own glory said, you are not able to escape from your sin, so I will throw it away for you. I will throw it away for you. Now go to Psalm 51. Let me show you what happens when you actually see grace. When, if, you, if what I've said to you makes any sense, if what I've said to you, at any, you know, not, not what I've said, excuse me, if what Scripture said, what I've read, if these things make any sense to you, then you'll feel just like David does right here. Psalm 51, verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Look, look at the time period. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this is right, probably right then. Maybe not that split second, but this time period. Watch what happens. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your, it says steadfast love. It could be translated grace. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your, I'm going to say grace, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my sin. Transgressions is sin. Blot out my sin. Wash me thoroughly from my... I picture this guy laid out on the floor, bawling his eyes out. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is in my face. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, everything you have said is true. I sinned against you and you only. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Does that mean his mom was a whore? What's he saying? I was born this way. I was no, there was no hope from my birth. You think I'm wrong? Ephesians 2.10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Colossians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Guys, you've got to see the... I mean, the man's probably bawling his eyes out. You ever felt like that? I know how this man feels, man. Maybe that's why this punches me so bad. I know how he feels. To feel so dirty that you just want to be clean. That's what he's saying. Let me hear joy and gladness. Dude, one of the greatest sentences, hardest. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. I've been there. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all of my iniquities. Here's a famous sentence that we quote all the time, but you got it in context now. Maybe it looks different. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Can't renew a right one if it wasn't wrong. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Another quoted passage. But now look at it in context. It's not saying he's forgotten, lost, and abandoned by God. He just lost the joy because so much sin has come into his life. He's tore up. Restore to me the joy of my salvation, of your salvation, excuse me, and uphold me with a willing spirit. 
One thing that's neat, let me say this real quick, verse 12. One thing that's neat about that, the word salvation, literal, the Hebrew word is Yeshua, which is Jesus. So if you look at it in that context, you can't really say this, but it's just neat to read it that way. Restore to me the joy of your Jesus. That's pretty neat. Then, then I, after God, after you do all of that, then I will respond. Not I will and then you will. You do all of that, then I will teach transgressors your way. In other words, then I will speak your word to sinners around the world. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guilt, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Give me reason to shout. That's what he's saying. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. Can't buy your way into being right with God. It is not possible. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. And David's heart, my friends, is terribly, 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 terribly broken. Terribly broken. And what's neat is he doesn't say, please don't mess my family up. Please take back this curse that you put on my family. Please don't let these things you said happen. That's not what he says. The only thing David says is, I am separated from you and I cannot bear it. That's all he says. I know that I have sinned in your face and I'm disgusted with myself. Don't, no, no bail me out of this. No, none of that. Just God, please forgive me. Give me the joy of my salvation back. What does it cost him? We're going to see it. But do you already know what does it cost him? His son, not, not, not just the one that's born to Bathsheba, but another son. Look back at 2 Samuel real quick. Back, back at 2 Samuel verse 12, we're about to be done. His family, his future, it costs the people of Israel. You're going to see some of the most crazy stories in the Bible related to Israel that are fixing to happen as a result of David's sin. And as I already said, the sword is still in Israel 3,000 years later, Three thousand years later, the people of Israel are still bearing a sword. And you got to remember something. When David was in charge, and you can ask people, you can ask Jews today, go to Israel, ask them today. When David was in charge, all of Israel for a time was at peace. For a time. Solomon actually rode on that train for just a little while of peace. And then it went to chaos. And it's been chaos ever since. But look back in verse 14. Nevertheless, because so in other words, grace has forgiven you. Grace has forgiven you. But because by this deed you have what the Hebrew says made enemies of the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Now, that's another thing. We're going to talk about that next week. So if you're wrestling with this, hold on, come back next week. We'll get into more on that next week. Then Nathan went to the house and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and he became sick. I'm telling you, I don't understand how the health, wealth and prosperity people preach through this junk. I don't get it. What did this child do to God? I'm not trying to make you hate God. I'm just reading the word. What did this child do to God? And why is God not just blessing his every desire? And God afflicted. God afflicted. You know what afflicted means? Made sick. Not, well, he was a cripple. No, he was sick. 
pneumonia. I don't know what it was. He put there's a disease. Oh, he's the healer. He wants everybody to be healed. Really? And he became sick. And David, therefore, sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And you're going to see he lays on that ground for a long time. We're going to talk about that next week. But um, let me stop there. I, I, I had wanted to go a little bit farther into something, but I decided not to. Um, something very interesting in there. Maybe y'all can study it in your own time. Or if you want to know what I think about it, email me. I'll tell you. But it's interesting that God never addresses directly, nor does uh, Nathan address Bathsheba. It's pretty interesting. But she's not innocent. Now, she loses her, she loses her child. I can't imagine a more horrific way to suffer, I guess. But at the same time, there's no, we don't, we're not told a word goes to Bathsheba in all this. But she's not innocent. It's interesting. Let me give you three quick points you can walk out of here with, and I'm done. Real quick, here they are. Three quick points from all this you can walk out of here with. Sin, besides being viciously ugly to God, sin is always has a victim. And listen, here it is. You need to see yourself as that victim. You need to see, you don't, you need to quit thinking about because of my sin, they suffered and because of my sin, he suffered and because of my sin, they suffered. You need to realize because of your sin, you are suffering. Okay. Sin always has a victim and you need to see yourself as the victim. Number two, sin is forgiven. Listen, by grace alone. No amount of work you do, no prayer you pray, no anything that you do will cause you to be saved. Only grace alone will save you. That's it. And you want to argue that one? I need you to read Ephesians and Colossians. Actually, you need to start in Genesis and go to Revelation. But we can be real specific and say, read Ephesians and Colossians and then come back and explain it to me if that's not the case. Okay, for by grace, you have been saved. This is not of your own doing, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's about as blunt as it gets. Okay, and then last, that said, sin carries consequences. And that's just a fact. Ask Moses. How'd you like to be Moses? You know, you deliver the people from Egypt. You put up with their crying and their moaning through the deserts for 40 stinking years. You put up with all that, all this junk, and because of one sin, you don't get to see this. You don't, you don't get to go into the land that you spent your whole life trying to lead a people to. Uh, there's a lot of y'all in this room can probably testify to the damage that sin does. Um, you might, God makes something great out of your life, but there's always damage. I'm divorced. You know, my daughter, sixteen. And we've been, and I've been married to Molly. Y'all know Molly. I've been married to her for 10 years. So it's 10 years past. My wife and I have, I mean, my ex-wife and I have a great relationship. She comes to this church. She's, I think she's a member now, but she's been coming for a couple of years. Her and Molly get along great. We have, uh, Sarah has been, my daughter has been great in the whole mix. God has done something amazing. I don't I can't even imagine the things that I have done in my life with Carrie. That's my, my former wife. I can't imagine doing half of the things I've done in my life if Carrie was still my wife because Molly fits perfectly into that plan. And so I sit here in amazement at God who hates divorce, yet has made something amazing out of my sin. That said, I still 
deal with an ex-wife all the time. I still deal with two women in my life where there shouldn't be. I still deal with having to explain things to a daughter periodically that I shouldn't have to explain to. Um, I could go into drugs. You know, I had a, a mass, some of y'all can relate to this, massive drug past. God has delivered me from that 15 years out of it. I've been clean for a long time. But if you talk to me for very long, I might stutter some when I talk. I don't do it on a microphone much. I might stutter some. I might say something, forget what I said. You might ask me to do something. And then I'm like, what? Wait, what did you say? Uh, Sarah can tell you I'm terrible with names. A lot of you are, but I'm like extremely terrible. And I, I never forget faces, but I just have this like short-term memory loss. You tell me your name and I've lost it that fast. And it's, it's gotten a lot better, but it's still there. There's scars. Sin carries consequences, guys. Saved by grace, but it carries consequences.